Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 32 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Landrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And I regret to inform everybody that, of course, the month of July is now over. The month of August is upon us. And with it, the coming end of the traditional season of summer. Unfortunately, White Boy Summer 2021 is over and there is nothing we can do about that. As the summer season passes and schools eventually presumably start to come back, assuming they won't be locked down again. But some things are still sticking around with us even after the official season of summer ends, such as the hot weather, especially here in the D.C. area, the humid weather. And unfortunately, some of the other side effects that come with hot weather. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. weather-wise, I've never been able to stand – as someone who grew up in Florida, I've never been able to stand summer. <laughs> yeah. Well, growing up where I grew up – and I, I, of course, grew accustomed to the heat, but it would get the hottest. It would easily hit over 100 degrees, somewhere in like the mid-100s. And with it, of course, all the insects. I think the insects are the worst because, you know, all the bugs die in the winter. They die in the cold weather, but they thrive in the hot weather. And, of course, here in D.C., we had our very interesting share of insect life. For the, for the first, like, once every 17-year trend, something known as the cicadas or cicadas, however you pronounce it. And when those those actually died out earlier than I expected, they they kind of stopped showing up altogether in, like, July, like, early or mid-July, I think. So that's all done, right, Jacob? We don't have to worry about bugs anymore, right? Yeah, whenever I went out west to work fireworks at the end of June, they were everywhere. You couldn't walk. I mean, they were just – you'd have to live around the D.C. area to know what we're talking about. I and mean, it's not just the fact that these bugs are everywhere. It's they're loud. Like you can't – it's a deafening roar as you're walking down or biking down the street. You literally can't hear someone talk to you if they're trying to – trying to carry on a conversation well that but, and um, also the fact that they were all over when they first came out they don't know how to fly they have wings but they're just kind of flapping around they're all over the sidewalks and just smashed cicadas everywhere these ugly orange goop pools of just like smashed bugs and have <laughs> yeah. to step around them and also they urinate on you as you're walking through the woods or even on a yeah. sidewalk they're up in the trees just thousands of them they urinate on you so that was very that was uh, another downside to the cicadas but whenever I came back, they were all gone, and I was thinking, okay, this is great. We can finally enjoy the summer without any newsome insects. Well, yesterday, sometimes my legs start itching, my arms start itching. I'm just wondering, where is the mosquito that's eating me up, and I can't find a mosquito anywhere? It turns out, apparently, this is something that's been going on in Arlington. After the cicadas laid all their eggs, there's a new oak, some kind of oak termite. Or a uh, this is an uh, article in the USA Today that talked about it. it says the Washington D.C. region is no longer a primary home to cicadas, but now has been introduced to a new insect that is just as annoying. These don't rattle and shriek; they bite. And apparently, it's a this thing called pyamodes, an oak leaf uh, mite, uh, some type of oak leaf mite that uh, that bites you, and it feeds off the cicada eggs. So the cicadas le the cicadas left, but their eggs stuck around. So now these mites are going around feeding off of them and also feeding off human beings. So this is something that people in Arlington were uh, were wondering what in the world's going on. A lot of people were going to the emergency room wondering why they've got these bites all over them. And the people at the emergency room, the hospital, they didn't have any idea what this was. And they had to look up some professor at the University of Cincinnati, I think, and, um, and he said, yeah, these, these insects are feeding off these cicada eggs. So if it's not one thing, it's another. People go into the emergency room thinking this is the new Epsilon variant of the coronavirus, just these bites suddenly appearing on our legs. No, I mean, that, that is the, the sad thing is that, you know, it was said the cicadas, they were annoying. They were everywhere. Their smashed guts were all over the street, but they were docile. They wouldn't hurt you. They, they, weren't, they wouldn't bite. They weren't poisonous. They didn't sting you, nothing like that. They were just kind of a, a nuisance, whereas these are actually, you know, that they bite. And I don't know, like these... Is there any report on these things being poisonous, or is it just bites that will eventually like? No, it's away? just it's just a bites. Like uh, it felt like I had gotten into poison ivy, just really aggravating. 
I really, really hate this area so much. But we are here for your entertainment, everybody. We are here to give you guys all the updates on what goes on in the heart of the swamp that is Washington, D.C., the capital of our nation. And we have a great show here for you guys today to talk about the latest stuff going on in D.C., some dirty, dirty politics worthy of a really bad ripoff of House of Cards. We will be talking about a scheme in an organization you would not think would be likely for schemers and backstabbers to be hatching their plans, but that is what happened, and we will talk about that. We will talk about the latest on cancel culture, the latest victims, how some people are groveling to it, and how others are standing up against it. And we will be talking about an article that explains to us what America's, quote, new elite is. So get ready for that, guys. First things first, uh, I got to talk about this. I, oh, I I did not really know what my topic was going to be until this story came up uh, earlier. This, this actually happened a couple weeks ago, and it only came to my attention recently. The college Republicans. What do, you, what do you think of when you hear the phrase college Republicans, Jacob? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, I, when I was in college, I was part of the college Republicans. And um, in fact, I was the college Republican uh, treasurer for one semester. That was fun. It was me and the college Republican president. We, we There were two of us. And sometimes a third person would come to our meetings every now and then. But most of the time, it was just the two of us. So it was kind of a waste of time. But uh, when I think of college Republicans, I think of a group of people who get together who are Republicans and typically – so oftentimes liberal arts students, very active in politics, knowledgeable about politics, and help out local candidates. That's kind of the mission that you would expect from college Republicans. Yeah, definitely uh, election season guns for hire is one thing that I would think of. You know, that they're a group, usually a little group that will go that, and they will basically answer the beck and call of the state party or local party to go and knock doors or make phone calls for any candidate in, a, in any district nearby that's relevant, whether it's a swing district or a, a district they're never going to win. But they do it anyway because that's what they do. They are very political animals, as you said. There's a stereotype that has been kind of – that has cropped up over the years about college Republicans – as lots of, you know, bow tie wearing policy wonk wannabe nerds and losers. And that certainly is not an inaccurate portrayal, in my opinion. A lot of them are like that. A lot of them, certainly where I was from in California, quite a few did not have great ambitions. They mostly, in California, they mostly aspired to some kind of semi cushy staff job in Sacramento. You know, they never really thought about the culture war. Or they never thought about the grand scheme of things. Very few of them have ever left California. They stuck with California politics, which as we've talked about in previous episodes, California Republican politics is non-existent. It's, it's not a thing. It's, it's, there's not a lot of upward mobility. It's a little playground that they kind of get to themselves and there's not a lot of competition. So it's easy to rise to the top of that. But when you're at the top of a little playground instead of, you know, the actual kingdom, is that really much of an accomplishment? But something happened a couple weeks ago. July 17th was the date. That by all accounts, for all intents and purposes, the College Republicans National Committee, CRNC, the national organization that encompasses state federations and various chapters all across the country, the College Republicans basically collapsed last month. How did this happen? So every two years, they have their uh, biannual convention where they elect their chairman, their, their national board, treasurer, all that stuff, led by a chairman that serves two-year terms. And over the course of the Trump presidency from 2017 to 2021, the national chairman was a delightful chap by the name of Chandler Thornton. As somebody said to me, like, that name just screams privilege. That's that's the kind of name you would write for a rich boy character in, like, a sitcom. Like, you know, Thurston Howell III, the millionaire in Gilligan's Island. It's that kind of name. This guy has been in the D.C. area his whole life. He was born in Maryland. 
He attended American University right here in D.C., and he was the chair of the D.C. Federation of College Republicans, first elected in 2017, re-elected in 2019. And he stepped down. Of course, he did not seek a third term this year, 2021. And his preferred successor, this woman that apparently was groomed to be his successor, is a girl by the name of Courtney Britt. She's the chair of the Virginia Federation of College Republicans. And she faced some competition. Normally how this works with college Republicans, and again, having been active at the California College Republicans, this is usually how it works. The incumbent slate, the incumbent board members, handpick their own successors to run on a single slate that almost always runs unopposed. They, they very rarely have competition. So he basically assumed this girl, Courtney Britt, would run and win without any opposition. Unfortunately, she faced opposition from an Arizona member named Judah Waxelbaum, who was the Western Regional Vice Chair for CRNC. And Waxelbaum had earned more than enough endorsements. He earned the endorsements of 30 states, which is more obviously more than majority. That's more than half of the total state federations in the country. So it seemed like going into the election, he was going to be the winner against the wishes of the incumbent chairman. I wrote about this in an article at American Greatness, The Collapse of the College Republicans, where apparently seeing that Brit was going to lose... Thornton himself, along with his national board, actively interfered in the election to sway it in favor of Brit away from Waxelbaum. What they did was they deliberately reinterpreted some very obscure clause in the CRNC bylaws, asking that any chapters and any state federations that wanted voting delegates at the convention had to submit, each chapter had to submit a letter from their faculty advisor. You know, you get a member of the faculty to sign off on the creation of your club, basically. And the faculty advisor would have to send a letter to CRNC confirming the existence of each chapter to confirm this is an existing active chapter. Here's the kicker. The states in favor of Waxelbaum were never informed of this new criteria. Only the states supporting Brit were informed of this. And they all sent in their emails with this information at roughly the exact same time, 4 a.m. Eastern Time, July 11th. The vast majority of the emails even had the exact same subject lines and general body text, written like a template, basically, with blank names for the name of the professor and the name of the school and whatever. And an email obtained by National Review between Thornton himself and a professor at an Ohio university that was supportive of Brit confirmed that Thornton himself was directly involved in this scheme to keep this information from the opposition crowd and in favor of his crowd. This resulted in 12 of the 30 states that supported Waxelbaum being completely stripped of their voting rights. They were all denied delegates at the convention, reducing him to just 18 so that Brit could have a narrow majority and would ultimately win. Waxelbaum pointed out that, among other things, her home state of Virginia, as a result of this, saw their delegate total actually increase from four votes to seven, giving them more votes than the states of California, New York, and Florida combined because these states were all either kicked out and denied representation altogether or had reduced numbers of delegates. So Brit was quote unquote elected. And this is basically set off a total breakdown of the CRNC. Multiple federations have completely seceded and broken off from CRNC, California, Arizona, Iowa, New York, Texas, and Mississippi have all left and other states that are considering seceding are Florida, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, among many others. And this is just one of, of multiple scandals going on. Again, Thornton himself is a total never-Trumper. He's a rhino. I wrote a previous article at American Greatness about how he wrote an op-ed for Fox News back in 2019 declaring that the biggest problem with the GOP was not big tech censorship. It wasn't 
culture war. It wasn't universities. The biggest problem facing the GOP was white supremacy. He And he touted his efforts to kick so-called white supremacists out of his organization, and he criticized Steve King, among other things. So he's a total never-Trumper, and when someone came along who basically kind of threatened that and basically threatened his stranglehold on power, he went out of his way to rig the election. Another article, we'll also include a link to this in the description below, from Spectator World. Headline, College Republicans Rocked by Fake Sexual Assault Allegations Scandal. This is some great investigative reporting that came out just the other day by Philip Nieto that says that Brit, when Brit previously ran for a position in CRNC, she was running for a, reg a Southern Regional Vice Chair position in 2019, and her opponent for this position was a guy named Clay Smith. According to this report, which has been backed up by multiple witnesses, two women were approached by members of Thornton's National Board to make up sexual assault allegations against Smith so that Britt would win that election so she would, you know, speed up the process of being uh, groomed, of climbing up the ladder to be national chair. Both women, of course, refused to do so and eventually came to Spectator to confirm these allegations. And these allegations were further confirmed at the convention where Britt was elected by none other than Ty Seymour, the national treasurer of CRNC, who gave a speech to, in front of the entire audience, where, among other things, he said, yes, members of the national board have tried to fake sexual assault allegations against their rivals. And in a mic drop moment of the night, this guy, who is himself kind of a rhino, who is one of Thornton's biggest supporters, said, quote, it's been said that power corrupts and power corrupts absolutely. I want to thank Chandler Thornton and Courtney Britt for reaffirming that belief, end quote. Just completely roasted them. And this, and this, among many other things, there's also allegations I actually got confirmation of this for my article at American Greatness, but speaking to the chairman of the Iowa State Federation, Ryan Hurley, who one of the states that seceded, he says the CRNC has been in debt, is quote, millions in debt and has been for some time. And the IRS has been contacted and is currently investigating CRNC. <laughs> so <laughs> just a ton of problems. Why does all of this matter? The big question I always get is who cares about college organizations? This is just college drama. Who cares? Why does this matter? And normally, I would agree with you. Yeah, it's college drama. It's, you know, dumb young adults basically still with the mindsets of teenagers, you know, partying and alcohol and all that fun stuff in charge of an organization that's more of like, in some ways, it's more of like a frat than an actual political organization. But I'd argue this does matter for many, many reasons. But the biggest one is that as cliche as it is, yes, college Republicans are part of the future of, the, of our movement. You have, especially in the age of Trump, you have a lot of very enthusiastic nationalist populist activists, America firsters who support the MAGA agenda, support President Trump, and they want to continue spreading the promoting those values and changing the GOP for the better. But when you have actual neocons and rhinos like Thornton, like Britt, who will go out of their way to rig an election, especially after we just had a national election rigged against us last year, we know how, what a serious problem voter fraud is. They turn around and commit voter fraud, obviously on a much lesser scale within the organization, but voter fraud nonetheless, to rig an election in their favor against Members of their own movement. This isn't rigging an election against Democrats, which I would almost understand at this point. This is rigging an election against fellow Republicans just because they're more conservative. They're too radical. They're too pro-Trump. These are the people who just want to move on from the Trump era and think it was just a fluke. So I think this is important because if we don't do something now, then all you're going to get is a lot of disillusioned patriots, nationalists, and populists who are just going to quit. They're going to throw their hands up and say, all right, fine, I'm done with this. I'm not going to bother with this movement. I quit. And a lot of them have. There was a significant decline in membership of college Republicans chapters across the country. A lot of them fleeing the college Republicans outright, uh, exodus, if you will, in favor of Turning Point USA, 
I've always said, and people criticize Turning Point USA for a variety of things. I've always said that in the landscape of conservative youth groups, national conservative student organizations in the country, there are four major players. There's the College Republicans, Young Americans for Freedom, Young Americans for Liberty, and Turning Point USA. And I would argue Young Americans for Liberty, they're just a cringe libertarian, Ron Paul obsessed organization, which is ridden with scandal as well. Their national chairman recently had to resign himself due to sexual assault allegations. Yaf, I've talked about Yaf before, and I have experience with Yaf in the past. They're just obsessed with Ronald Reagan. All they do is just talk about how great Ronald Reagan was. And he, he fine, you can like Ronald Reagan. But this is a 1980, this is 2021, and they still act like it's the 1980s. And they're irrelevant as well. College Republicans, they, what do they do? What do they even do? Have you heard of anything? Has Jacob, have you heard of any, like, big events or rallies or conferences or anything hosted by the college Republicans in recent years? No, in fact, throughout the Trump years, it seems like they didn't even exist. You never heard anything about them. Exactly. Or they, from them. Exactly. They had a significantly reduced, they had basically no ground game plan in either 2018 or 2020. And I do believe, I speculate at this point, that that was due to soft anti-Trumpism. They never supported Trump. The previous chairman of the college Republicans before Thornton, the first woman chairman ever in the history of the CRNC, Alexander Smith, was among those who called for Trump to withdraw from the race after the uh, Hollywood access tape fiasco. And of course, he did win. CRNC never even issued a congratulatory statement, nothing. They never accepted him. And Thornton continued this soft anti-Trumpism, and CRNC was non-existent in 2018 and 2020, two very crucial election years, especially when they're the only organization that's legally allowed to affiliate with the Republican Party and do campaigning and stuff like that. So yeah, they are irrelevant. They don't have conferences anymore. Turning Point USA is the only one they have by far, they're the most well-funded at this point. They get the most media coverage. They're the ones hosting larger and larger events. I think their last Student Action Summit just a couple weeks ago had over 4,000 people in attendance. When was the last time CRs or EF had a conference that big? And of course, they and they host Donald Trump. They host all the big people in Trump world. They have the big names that people come to see. They are the ones in shining lights. They're the in thing right now. And they're just running away with it. They have run away with number one spot for a reason, for many reasons, I think. It's certainly one of them is the fact that they're the only ones that have unapologetically embraced Trump, but also because their competition is just so bad. You know, college Republicans have nothing to offer. Yaf and Yao have nothing to offer. We need to work on fixing the youth movement of our of the right and making it as robust as possible. Have a robust nationalist college Republicans to match the nationalism and unapologetic pro-Trumpism of Turning Point USA. We should have as many right-wing national populist youth organizations as possible in this country. But until we do something about this inter-party bickering and literal fraud being organized, and people called this out. People in high places called this out. Elise Stefanik, the uh, House Republican Conference Chair, you know, number three Republican in the House, who herself rose to power through a similar ideological clash, you know, her versus Cheney. She called this out. Uh, George P. Bush called it out. The chairman of the Young Republicans called it out. Several members of Congress called this out, this voter fraud, for what it was. If we don't do something about this now, then we're squandering our chance to get our a whole new generation of nationalists and America Firsters organized, as they should be. We will not be getting them organized. They will be disillusioned, and they'll leave, and it will remain splintered and fractured. Well, you question why they would use voter fraud against their own people like this, but the, the problem is they don't really see these as their own people. If you go back in time, let's say 20 or 30 years, you would probably find that most universities, there was kind of a parody uh, with college Democrats versus college Republicans. Yes, all, there are probably a few more college Democrats in most universities just because universities have always leaned toward the Democratic Party. But today, at least when I was in college, it became that way more so as in, in my latter years of college. The the uh, the numbers between Democrats and Republicans t tends to be like five to one, eight to one, ten to one. 
especially if you go to more liberal universities than the college Democrats. If they're active, they probably have like 200 members versus the Republicans that might have five members show up. So as the Republican Party becomes more and more nationalistic, more and more populist, as universities become more globalist and more anti-nationalism, you're going to find that most of the students are not Republicans. So it's hard to it's hard, becoming harder and harder to recruit out of this pool of people who are natural Democrats when the Republican Party do, just doesn't speak to their issues and their values. So when you've got Republicans who are trying to build up this organization that's talking to a group of people that come from a separate class from what most Republicans come from, they're going to try to push out people who represent most Republicans because they want to boost their own numbers. They want to build up the organization. They don't really care if their values don't align with the class values of the Republican Party. So they don't really recognize these people as being part of their people. If they can get rid of the Trump people and bring the Republican Party more in line with Mitt Romney's values, then it can actually boost their numbers. They would actually succeed in having a bigger impact on their campus. But nationally, they wouldn't have much of an impact because the campuses don't align with what the people – with what the average American thinks and believes in. Well, exactly. And if nothing else, if you know you're going to be hopelessly outnumbered and outgunned on these university campuses, you might as well be a worthy opposition. You might as well go all out and be America first, be nationalist, be populist, call out illegal immigration, call out tra transgenderism nonsense. Go for it. Don't just be Democrat light like the California Republican Party. And see, that's what YAF used to do back in the 60s. YAF was known as the countercultural as the counterculture to the counterculture. Yeah. Like they, they would do they would sabotage leftist events. They would be they were every bit as they radical. Were edgy. Yeah, they yeah. were edgy. They were every bit as radical on the right as the hippies and the anti-Vietnam War protesters were on the left. They supported the Vietnam War purely to spite the left, which looking back obviously that was a historically incorrect stance, but at the time it was it made sense as the opposition. But not just the Vietnam War. I mean, there the traditional values at the time they pushed back against drugs and the abort the pro abortion stances that the left had. And Feminism. even recently, there were uh, students who would go out of their way to push back against social justice warriors. Typically, it's TPUSA people. And a lot of them are probably former YAF members who are like, you know, this is kind of 80s cringe. Let's go join a more modern movement that represents the this day and age. But the, this kind of ties into our main topic because the Republican Party doesn't really represent the Republican Party of 20, 30 years ago. I mean, typically, if you had, you know, let's go back to the 80s, you would have a college Democrat chapter, college Republican chapter. Okay, the college Democrats would represent the social liberal, the socially liberal, the pro-union students, the, the students who are history majors, who idolize FDR. The Republicans would represent business interests, so they would be business majors. Their parents would be, you know, corporate lawyers. Their parents would be CEOs. Their parents would be small business owners. That dichotomy just doesn't really exist anymore because colleges today aren't necessarily training small business owners in the future. They're training the new bourgeoisie of major urban areas. So David Brooks, he wrote a very insightful article on the state of today's parties, How the Bobos Broke America. And this plays off of his book back in 2000 called Bobos in Paradise, the New Upper Class and How They Got Here. And the book talks about the kids of the yuppies. Bobo is basically a play on bourgeois and bohemian. So they're bourgeois bohemians, people from the upper classes who typically move into hollowed out industrial areas and cities. They'll buy up a lot of cheap property. They'll set up art galleries. They'll set up coffee shops. They'll set up breweries, stuff like that. They were kind of the, pre the predecessors of the modern hipster. So Brooks is revisiting his takes on, um, on, his, on his book, Bobos in Paradise, um, definitely the bestseller he ever wrote. 
And for those of you that don't know, David Brooks is uh, he's kind of like uh, Jennifer Rubin in that he's he's a conservative, but he's more he uh, prides himself in being more of an uh, a Burkean. I'm not one of those conservatives, basically. Exactly. Yeah, he's more of like a classical um, Burkean conservative, uh, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton type conservative who tries to wants to try to push conservatism back to a, a bygone era that doesn't really have any re- uh, relevancy to actual voters. But he's he's more of like the the leftist in-house conservative. But his uh, this article is extremely insightful. What he does is he looks at his book that he wrote in 2000 that looked at the new, the emerging elite, the young elite at the turn of the 21st century who took the hippie values and married them with capitalism. So they're basically capitalist hippies. They reject socialism, they reject communism, Marxism, all that stuff that they're uh, that they're hippie forebears kind of flirted with many of them were openly openly believed in and they've embraced wholeheartedly embraced capitalism but they've taken the social values of the hippies and the social left and tried to merge the two so basically fiscally conservative socially liberal and in this book he uh he talks about he compares how he viewed them back then in 2000 to how he views the political climate today he opens up the article Saying the dispossessed set out early in the mornings. They were the outsiders, the scorned, the voiceless. But weekend after weekend, unbowed and undeterred, they rallied together. They didn't have much going for them in their great battle against the privileged elite, but they did have one thing, their yachts. And he's talking about the Trump parades, the, the Trump boat parades that um, that were going on right before the 2020 election, how you had these wealthy or upper middle class Trump supporters who were going out with their yachts and their nice boats and having Trump flags dressed out in MAGA gear and all that stuff. And what he's pointing out is these these elites, when um, not necessarily elites, but they're, they typically tend to be upper middle class. Some of them are wealthy. When people would interview them and ask them why they were on the water for Donald Trump. They would typically rail against the media. They would rail against academia. They would rail against the elites and the privileged classes. But yet here they are on a, an extremely expensive boat. Many of them are CEOs. Many of them are small business owners. Many of them are lawyers, doctors. They're very well positioned in life. So their grievances weren't economic. Their grievances were social. They were supposed to be the privileged class. They were supposed to be the elite, but they had been supplanted by a new elite. And Donald Trump was going to stick it to that new elite, which drew many of these people who ordinarily wouldn't support Donald Trump to his campaign and to his movement. Nicholas Kemla is a French, or Shemla, I guess, uh, I guess that's how it's pronounced, but he's uh, apparently a French philosopher that Brooks cites. Kemla, or Shemla, coined the term boubours, B-O-U-B-O-U-R-S, and um, as opposed to the bobos, the bourgeois elites, the Bubors are the people who previously made up the elite but have now been supplanted by the new elite. These people are not bohemians. They're your traditional, hardworking citizens who built their wealth the old-fashioned way. Many of them are business owners. Many of them are lawyers. Many of them are doctors. And they, are, uh, they have become radicalized because of the new bourgeois bohemians who have supplanted their position in society. And now they are teaming up with working-class people. And this is true in the United States. It's true in France. It's true in Brazil, in the UK. And Brooks identifies some of these boobors as Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Jair Bolsonaro, Marine Le Pen, a lot of the uh, the AFD leaders in Germany, uh, Matteo Salvini. And he points out that what these people have in common is none of these people come from humble beginnings. Or if they do, they've, they you know managed to supersede those humble beginnings long ago. It's not like they just – they're working class people or union leaders. They're not people that would traditionally be leftists. 
However, they've managed to attract a lot of voters who are traditionally leftist, but not necessarily because they themselves have moved to the left, but because they share a common grievance with these working class voters that typically voted for left wing parties. That common grievance is the new elite, the new socially liberal elite that has taken over the urban centers of the world, whether it's London, Paris, um, uh, Portland, Seattle, New York, Washington, D.C., the new young elite that has taken over thanks to the Internet, thanks to big tech, thanks to academia, and that they're basically running their campaigns on grievances against these people. Many of their – go ahead. Basically kind of like how, you know, previously the idea of, oh, eat the rich, we really don't like the rich was seen as a left-wing position because that was just kind of – that was seen as reflecting communist rhetoric of, oh, the bourgeoisie. But realistically, Trump and others in this America First movement really – encouraged the right to finally realize hey it's not communist to criticize the elite to criticize you know steve bannon especially it's there's nothing wrong with criticizing wall street ceos filthy rich athletes actors the celebrities who preach their leftist political views while they themselves will never have to suffer the consequences of what they preach and that realistically it should be a universal bipartisan stance that we can all agree that you know the elite kind of deserve to be punished again for different reasons the left thinks they need to be punished for being too rich the right thinks they should be punished for being leftist but at the end of the day we don't like the elite right right Uh, but the thing is these people typically they wouldn't have been aligned with these working class people in the past because they themselves Uh, were the elite exactly and brooks's brooks's thesis is that these people it's not necessarily um that they're not uh proud of their elite status but it's that they're losing their elite status because of this new uh, this new phenomenon that's that's emerged in the past twenty to thirty years, and uh, he basically points out, like in the past, you had uh, landowners, the aristocracy, business owners, they were at the top, they were Republicans. Then you had the journalists, the academics, they were typically on the outside of the class structure. But then underneath them, you had the workers, and typically the academics and the workers were aligned. That formed the FDR coalition. But what happened is the internet kind of just dropped a bunch of bombs all over this pyramid structure and scattered it to the winds, and it built its own pyramid up. Brooks mentions that in June of last year, a Trump regatta was held in Ferrysburg, Michigan. A reporter from WOOD spoke with one of the boaters, a guy in a white T-shirt, a MAGA hat, and a modest fishing boat. said, quote, we are always labeled as racist and bigots. There's a lot of Americans that love Donald Trump, but we don't have the platforms that the Democrats do, including big tech. So we, we have to do this, end quote. On a bridge overlooking the parade stood an anti-Trump protester, a young man in a black T-shirt carrying an abolish ICE sign. Quote, they use inductive reasoning rather than deduction, he told the reporter looking out at the pro-Trump voters. Quote, they only seek information that gives evidence to their presuppositions. So who's of a higher social class, the guy in the boat or the kid with the fancy words? Now, ordinarily, it would be the guy in the boat. And this is why people in, uh, in middle America, this is something I noticed in 2016, they had a very high disdain for people with a lot of education. They looked down on people with education. They looked down on nerds. They looked down on geeks. In fact, I remember this is back in the in the Ron Paul era. Uh, Ron Paul supporters were typically young. They were typically internet savvy. They were part of this new up and coming generation. Uh, the the Bobos, even though many of them uh, were, had not yet moved to cities, they were still living with their parents. They were also kind of some of the earliest uh, proponents of what would eventually become meme culture. Yes, yes, correct. Um, and I remember uh, one radio show I was listening to, and the guy was just railing against Ron Paul supporters, just going. This is conservatives just going off against Ron Paul supporters, 
And this guy called up and he mentioned uh, you've per- you've heard of OpenTheBooks.com. It's a it's, I'm sure it's a yeah yeah it's a, it's a website that just tracks political donations. It's run by a conservative think tank somewhere around Washington D.C. And this guy called up and he was talking about one of the candidates that had given donations to Democrats. I think it was Rick Perry. And he said, well, you know, uh, this guy gave donations to Democrats. And the radio uh, show host said, how do you know that? He said, we just go to openthebooks.com and it shows you what people have donated, when they donated, who they donated to. And this host said, keep in mind, this is 2011. Like the Internet's been around for a decade. This guy says, I'll bet you found that on the Internet, didn't you? You looked that up on the Internet. And the caller's like, yeah, openthebooks.com. It's a a website. Yeah, you, you found that on the Internet. And what he was arguing is nothing, you can't trust the internet. You can't basically. trust anything on the internet. If you find it on the internet, it's not true. You know, you got to go if you want to find information. You go find a book and you read a book because the internet is what a bunch of you can't trust any of it. But this was the mentality of a lot of these people who ended up breaking for Trump in 2016. They looked down on internet programmers. They looked down on IT people. And there was another radio host I was listening to during the 2016 election. They were they were all on the Trump train. Like they were 100 percent behind Donald Trump. This was early in the primary. And this guy called in who was an IT guy, and he was actually pro-Trump, you know, praising Trump. But he was trying to explain how a lot of the IT workers think and feel. And after he hung up, the host said, oh, an IT guy. It was kind of like you – know, okay. <laughs> Almost like a foreign specimen basically. Oh, exactly. Almost like a foreign specimen. Like, OK, well, when are you going to get done playing with keyboards and go get a real job? That type of thing. That, and, that's why I remember at a certain point when um, – remember when uh, hashtag learn to code was trending? Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, that was the, definitely that was an attack on you know journalists getting laid off and like basically making fun of them for you know how, all you know how to do is you know you know write terrible hit pieces, learn to code, and it was kind of a it was in that same sense it was kind of mocking them for you know being internet based in their occupation. Right, right, right. But uh, and then another guy called in and he was railing against the president. It was, of course, it was Obama at the time. He didn't even mention Obama by name. He just talking about the president. And I don't see how the president can make all this money. And you got to remember at this time, Middle America was hurting financially. The Obama mm-hmm. years were not good to working class people in Middle America. The people, early Obama years, especially when he that trillion dollar stimulus bill did nothing to solve the problems f- from the recession. Yeah, yeah, that actually uh, increased economic inequality. That um, it washed, the Washington D.C. area boomed during that because of that that stimulus package. That sounds. Sounds kind of familiar right about now, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the, that's the Ten thing. Ten years later. But that's the thing. Democrats take care of their voters. When they get mm-hmm. elected, they make sure their voters don't suffer financially. And because of this this dichotomy where you've got Republicans, the Republican elite is run by people who identify more socially with Democrats, yep. whereas their voters are from the rural backwater. The Republican elite are actually less likely to help their voters financially than the Democratic elite are because at least in the Democratic Party, you still have a strain of Joe Bidens who want to redistribute some of that wealth down to working class people. But this caller called in and he was just he was railing against the president and he was saying, wow, why does the president make this much money when all he does is sit around and push buttons all day? And. But this is the mentality. Like they don't know – a lot of these people, they don't know what the president does. They don't know what a computer does at this time. I mean nowadays, they, I'm sure many of them have actually modernized in their view of the internet. But even in the mid-20-teens, a lot of people in middle America, rural America didn't know how to send an email. They didn't know what a computer did. It was just – it was a completely foreign object to them. So this new elite class of internet programmers, of bloggers, of podcasters, of – you know, people, just business owners who took advantage of the internet in urban areas to appeal to the new hip young generation that was internet savvy and was able to 
keep up with the latest trends in pop culture, keep up with the latest trends in just an aesthetic. I mean, people who a lot of the, remember a lot of these people they did study abroad in London and Paris and Germany, and they came back. That's why around DC you've got all these beer gardens because these people, these the kids of the elite, they studied abroad in Germany. While they were in Germany, they vacationed at beer gardens. They're like, hey, we need something like this back in America. That's why you have a Pret-a-Manger in D.C. Like where else? What other? How many other American cities have a Pret-a-Manger on every other corner in their downtown era? But it's, it's because people went and they uh, they studied abroad in London. They sipped coffee at Pret-a-Manger's. And because that population was in D.C., Pret-a-Manger was like, okay, well, we're going to start opening up some of our stores there to appeal to this new clientele that is more globally aware. So this new elite, they don't gain their prestige or their money through the traditional channels because this is something I was actually talking to my dad about uh, recently. I was trying to explain to him why we have this new elite that's not socialist, but they're left wing. That's kind of hard for you know traditional capitalist conservatives to understand, especially after the Cold War. Yeah, that's those two things are synonymous as far as exactly. Yeah. So I asked him so. Said so. Imagine we're a hundred years in the past. It's not twenty twenty. It's nineteen twenty. If you want to become rich and you want to move up into the elite, what do you do? What do you invest in? What kind of work do you do? Well, at the time, you would probably go into oil. You'd probably move down to Houston, Texas. You would try to get an oil job, try to work your way up, and eventually become an oil tycoon or at least be a, a mid-level manager at an oil company. Today, with oil being increasingly under attack, it's not necessarily clear how much longer that's going to be a pathway to wealth. And it's it's kind of a hard pathway to wealth. Why would I want to go work hard for 20 years when I can have that wealth in two years? But because of this newfound wealth that was created through the tech era, but also because a lot of jobs require a college degree and the college degree began, uh, be, uh, began to be, um, what would they call that, a uh, signaling factor to major companies and global corporations that someone was competent, then those with a college degree, specifically an Ivy League degree, began to get a leg up that they ordinarily would not have gotten back in the 60s and 70s. This all just kind of reminds me, though, of an article I previously read like a, a few years ago, I think. I don't remember the name of it, don't remember the author or publication, but it basically said Trump, the Trump movement has redefined what it means to be elite in America. And he kind of drew a contrast, kind of like the one you talked about with the uh, the guy at the uh, the regatta versus the the boy, you know, protesting Trump. And he said, you know, like in in you know traditional definitions, uh, a man who owns, say, a car dealership who makes roughly a million dollars a year, he owns like a single car dealership in a town, would be considered part of the elite. Whereas, you know, this uh, recent college graduate who's working as a freelance journalist for maybe $20,000 a year would be considered part of the poor. But, you know, if you in Trump's definition of the elite, those are reversed. And the, the car dealership owner is just the American working class citizen. And the journalist is part of the elite because she's a journalist. So it kind of shows like income alone no longer in this new you know, paradigm no longer defines your status as an elite or not. It's more occupation and arguably even more political beliefs at this point. Yes, that's that's something else that Brooks points out that we'll uh, get to in a minute. But uh, it reminds me of a segment when Jesse – this was on The Five and on um, Fox News and Jesse Water. They were discussing what it means to be successful. What 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 is a barometer of success? And Jesse Water said, well, I've always thought of success as uh, how much money you had. And I thought to myself – that is so disconnected it's from shallow. the modern reality that we live in because that was true back in the world that he came from. And this is kind of – this is something that else that Brooks gets into when he starts defining the constituencies of the Democratic and Republican parties. The Republican Party's elite is still living in the yuppie era of the 80s. 
That's why the Republican Party elite broke so hard for Donald Trump. Even though Donald Trump repulsed many of them, they still voted for Donald Trump because he reminded them of the glory days of the 1980s when their kind were the kind to be. And they all wanted to be like him. They all wanted to be fabulously wealthy and you know have their names on buildings. Yes, and that was the way you achieved wealth. That was the way not, – well, not wealth. Um, that was the way you achieved success. That was the way you achieved prestige was by making money, lots of money. It just it, – you know, your, your net worth was what defined your success, and that's why Jesse Waters would say something like that because in the 80s and 90s, that was true. It was true across the board regardless of party affiliation. Your success was determined and defined by your net worth. And the reason it was determined and defined by your net worth, because at the time, the American dream was still very real. Anyone could move above their station in life. If they worked hard, if they applied their street smarts, if they went into the right industry, they could move ahead. But because of this new bobo culture, this new bourgeois, this new uh, bohemian bourgeois culture that has arisen, as Brooks point out, points out, these people are slamming the door on that so that people who want to rise above their station no longer can because – Success is no longer defined by net worth, and you can't even achieve net worth through hard work anymore like you could back in the 80s and 90s. Paul Fusel, he wrote a book in 1983 called Class, A Guide Through the American Status System. And Brooks points out that most of the book is a caustic and extravagantly snobby tour through the class markers prevalent at the time, the early 80s. After ridiculing every other class, Fusel describes what he called ex-people. These were people just like Fusel, highly educated, Curious, ironic, wittily countercultural. Ex people tend to underdress for social occasions, Fusel wrote. They know the best wine stores and delis. They have risen above the muck of mainstream culture to a higher, hipper sensibility. Brooks writes the chapter about ex people was insufferably self regarding, but Fusel was onto something. Every once in a while, in times of transformation, a revolutionary class comes along and disrupts old structures, introduces new values, opens up economic and cultural chasms. In the 19th century, it was the bourgeoisie, the capitalist merchant class. In the latter part of the 20th century, as, inf as the information economy revved up and the industrial middle class hollowed out, it was ex-people. In Brooks's book, Bobos in Paradise, he emphasizes that these people, these bobos, these ex-people, these, these people who hold on to the hippie sensibilities but believe in the capitalist system and acquire their wealth, obviously, through capitalist means, he points out that most of these people did not originate through old money. So their great-grandparents weren't wealthy. Many of them, their grandparents were wealthy. And in, uh, in National Review, John uh, Potteretz recently wrote an article on the rise and fall of the city and uh, focused on Bill de Blasio, how what a terrible mayor he was and uh, what a just absolutely horrible left-wing mayor, mayor he was. He points out that in the New York City had declined from like 8 million people in the 1950s to about 600,000 in the early to mid-1970s. The place was a complete disaster zone. It was just a third world hellhole. Nobody went there who cared about their health and safety or their life. And he points out that in the late 70s and early 80s, this started to turn around. Ed Koch became the mayor. He, uh, he cleaned the city up. He started to um, – new investments started pouring in. But Podhoretz points out that the Wall Street boom of the early 80s was the main driver of this revitalization of New York City. And in this Wall Street boom of the 80s, a lot of people made a lot of money who previously came from humble middle-class origins or were even poor. And this newfound wealth in New York City calls the city to thrive like it never had before. It's so much so that in nine, when 9-11 occurred, New York City was arguably at the heyday of its existence. And this new class of Wall Street tycoons, people who had made their money on Wall Street, 
their kids now grew up with a certain level of security and privilege that their parents and grandparents had never known. And in fact, many of them, none of their ancestors had ever known. So a lot of these people, they don't come from old wealth, old money, and they're very proud of that. They wear it on their sleeve that they're not like the the, the rich. That's, this is why many of them become socialists. Many of them become countercultural revolutionaries because even though they have a lot of money, their parents are wealthy, they don't identify with the wealthy class whose wealth traces back generations. Brooks writes, they had to find ways of spending their gobs of money while showing they didn't care for material things. So, so they developed an elaborate code of financial correctness, kind of like political correctness, to display their superior sensibility. Spending lots of money on any room formerly used by the servants was socially defensible. So, for instance, a $7,000 crystal chandelier in the living room was vulgar, but a $10,000 59-inch AGA stove in the kitchen was acceptable, a sign of your foodie expertise. And this is why the aesthetic of modern kitchens and condos is the way it is, which I find absolutely reprehensible. If you go into any major condo here in the suburbs of D.C. or in D.C. proper that has been built within the past 10 years, the kitchens, in my opinion, are absolutely hideous. But to these people, they're beautiful. They're modern. They're hip. They're chic. They show class. They show that you have made it into the yuppie world. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you just look, if you look on at, at real estate that's uh, in modern condos, typically the kitchen has no windows. It faces away from the window, which typically is uh, the kitchen and the living room are combined. The living room window faces out over the parking lot or over, you know, whatever. The kitchen is windowless. There's no natural light at all. It's so far away from the window, you can't see anything unless you have to turn the light on. The, the light is typically, it, it's typically spread out. Um, you might have five or so. What do you call those lights? It's like, a, it's not one light bulb. It's like five or six lights instead of just one central light fixture. I don't know what it's called. But but this this new style of kitchen, this is the way that these people show off their wealth. Because, you know, in the olden days, rich people would buy a fancy chandelier. But that is too capitalist. You know, it show, it's too much like the... The, the tycoons that they rail against. So instead, they'll buy fancy stoves. The countertops, this is another thing that they invest in. Fancy, expensive countertops, which I find, why would you spend money on a countertop? I find, to me, this is just It ugly. has a very basic function. It doesn't need to look good. <laughs> right, it doesn't, it doesn't need to look good, but also, whenever you pour a bunch of money into countertops, all you, in my opinion, all you do is you make it look ugly. Typically, they're real marble, um, a dark-colored marble. The kitchens tend to be huge. I, I know we're talking a lot about kitchens, but this is just the aesthetic that these people— This is the ar architectural episode like, of The Right Take. Yeah, this, so this <laughs> is the aesthetic that these people invest in. Rather than investing in things like chandeliers, like uh, like flashy cars, many of them don't even— This is another thing. A lot of these people don't own cars. Many no. of them purposely don't own cars because cars are associated with middle-class suburbia, and they hate middle-class suburbia with a passion. That's where they're— parents and grandparents moved to to escape the inner city so they'd they have rather, now they'd rather bike to show that they're fitness nerds or like you know the big cities they'll take the metro to support public transportation you know things like that and i mean i use the metro all the time of course because it is cheaper than having a car but like around this area especially you got those obnoxious like electric scooters that are like paid for by the city that people use <laughs> and they're buzzing around on those things and the other day i almost got run over by a couple of people beating by on one of those things they didn't like yell or anything they didn't let me know they were coming up behind me but yeah and to me i've always valued a kitchen or the, you know the interior of, a, of any house as something that looks like you could imagine 
a family living there back in the 50s or 60s. You know, the mom cooking lunch. Mom doing the cooking, the father and the kids at the table. Well, it, just having a window in the kitchen. This is why having a window in the kitchen, to me, it brings light into a house. A house or an apartment is depressing if there's no natural light flowing into the mm-hmm. kitchen. Because I picture, you know, like I think back whenever I was little, like my mom's in the kitchen. She's looking out the window watching me and my siblings play in the yard. This was kind of the Americana that we grew up with that we love. White you know, picket fence as the yeah, father comes home from work. Right, right. The kids are playing in the yard. And the purpose, you know, a kitchen served, a kitchen window served a very functional purpose. The mom could keep an eye on the kids to make sure they didn't run in the road and get run over. But with these yuppies, they're not having kids. So when you're designing a living space for people who aren't going to have children, why do you need to put a window in the kitchen? They're not, they don't, many of them, they actually have disdain for children. They see children as, uh, or, you know, over, they see the world as overpopulated. They don't love human beings. They don't care anything about people. They contribute to global warming. They contribute to inequality, having kids, all that stuff. So let's just have a dog instead. Have a fur baby. Yeah, let's let's have, that's why they all have, they all have dogs. Just the number of dogs at DC is, I love dogs. I like dogs too. But, but this city is overpopulated with pets. There like, are more dogs. We need to shut down immigration from pet centers and shelters until we can figure out what the hell is going on. We need there to have are a, more dogs than there are kids in th- this area. That's a pro- Yeah, that's the problem right there. We need to have a law passed where you cannot have more pets in any given city than you have children. You have to have at least have parity, preferably two kids to one pet. But uh, I digress. But this is why whenever you uh, you design buildings, the, the apartment is designed to show off. To your friends and your peers. For the house parties, the cocktail parties, all that fun stuff. Yes, The charcuterie boards. That's why you've got huge countertops so that they can all fit all their wine and their their booze on the countertops when they have all these yuppie parties over. They're not designed Mm -hmm. for families. They're not designed for practical use of raising children and raising the next generation. They're designed so you can show off to your friends. And this is what so th- this is what Brooks is pointing out. They spend gobs of money on on kitchen sinks, on stoves, on countertops. When it comes to aesthetics, smoothness was artificial, but texture was authentic. The new elite distressed their furniture, used refurbished factory floorboards in their great rooms, and wore nubby sweaters made by formerly oppressed peoples from Peru. Richard Florida's The Rise of the Creative Class praised this new class of young elites for the economic and social benefits they produce. And he argued enormous wealth was being created and was being generated by these highly educated people who could turn new ideas into software, entertainment, retail concepts, and more. If you wanted your city to flourish, he argued, you had to attract these people by stocking the streets with art galleries, restaurant rows, and cultural amenities. Florida used a quote-unquote gay index based on the supposition that neighborhoods with a lot of gay men are the sort of tolerant, diverse places to which members of the creative class flock. And he wasn't wrong. If you look at the history of D.C., Washington, D.C. was completely hollowed out into a third-world crackpot in 1968 or shortly thereafter after the MLK riots. The first people who started gentrifying were typically tended to be gay men who gentrified 17th Street in that corridor, I believe, in the 70s and 80s. And then the rest followed. These yuppies followed because this is kind of true. Brooks wrote in 2000 in his book, quote, the educated class is in no danger of becoming a self-contained class. He said anybody with the right degree, job and cultural competencies can join. He writes in this article, Brooks does, that turned out to be one of the most naive sentences I've ever written. <laughs> Rare and, moment of self-reflection, it seems. Yeah, and so – but yeah, I mean the he's kind of trying to make sense of his view of these people in 2000 compared to his view of them today. And at the time, a lot most of these people were still in high school, the ones who were moderately successful were in their mid to late 20s. 
Many of them were still in college. But he's pointing out that a lot of these people, at first, it just looked like the the new hipster class was just going to be, you know, innovative. They were going to create jobs. They were going to create small businesses. They wanted to. And in fact, I remember the American conservative 10 years ago praising these people. The American conservative was all about the, the, the new hipster class because in a way what they were doing at the time seemed conservative. You had all of these inner cities that had been hollowed out and turned into ghettos. Hipsters were coming in, buying up the property, and they were turning these, uh, this, this property into livable spaces. They weren't living large and huge suburban McMansions. They were living in small apartments, kind of like their great-grandparents did rather than their parents and great-grandparents. And they were revitalizing America's inner cities because these cities used to be very thriving, middle-class, almost utopia-like places in the 40s and 50s until they were destroyed by the 1960s. So in a way, it seemed like this new class of young, hip, wealthy people who were coming in or upper-middle-class people were going to revitalize America's cities. The problem, though, is the social values that they held didn't allow them to do that. Most of these people who came in were atheists. In fact, uh, they were very much against Christianity, the Christianity of their parents and their grandparents. So their moral compass was being driven by self-importance and self-centeredness. And the society that they would end up creating would value that self-centeredness and that humanistic thought that completely threw out not just Christianity, but traditional morals and family values that people had held on to for millennia. So one of those values is group preference, in-group preference. Every single society in history has always survived and thrived through and maintained itself through group preference. These people throw out group preference in any form of collectivism, and in many ways they're the exact opposite of socialists because they're hyper-individualistic. So what happens when these people end up having kids, the few who do actually have children? Well, as Brooks writes, affluent parents have increased their share of educational spending by nearly 300 percent since 1996. And the reason is because these people look around, they, they say, OK, I created this this new elite. Me and my peers created this elite through a college education. So I'm going to make sure that my kids get into the very best schools. So they spend just exorbitant amounts of money for their one or two kids to go to the best high schools and then the best colleges. Roughly 72% of students at these colleges come from the richest quarter of families, whereas only 3% come from the poorest quarter. A 2017 study found that 38 schools, including Princeton, Yale, Penn, Dartmouth, Colgate, and Middlebury, draw more students from the top 1% than from the bottom 60%. The second point that Brooks makes is we've migrated to just a few great wealth-generating metropolises. Fifteen years after the rise of the creative class, the, the guy I mentioned earlier, Florida, Richard Florida, he published a reconsideration, kind of what Brooks is doing in this article. And his reconsideration was the new urban crisis. And he pointed out that young creative types are indeed clustering into a few zip codes, which produce enormous innovation and wealth along with soaring home values. Florida noted in that book from 2007 to 2017, the population of college-educated young people between the ages of 25 and 34 grew three times faster in downtown areas than in the suburbs of America's 50 largest metro areas. Just six metro areas, the San Francisco Bay Area, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., San Diego, and London, attract nearly half of the high-tech venture capital in the world. This has also created gaping inequalities within cities themselves as high housing prices push middle and lower class people out. Over the past decade and a half, Florida wrote, nine in 10 U.S. metropolitan areas have seen their middle classes shrink. The largest American metro areas most segregated by occupation, he found, are San Jose, San Francisco, Washington, Austin, L.A., and New York. 
And think about in D.C. You mentioned it's Washington, D.C. Where is the middle class in Washington, D.C.? Typically, the only middle class that exists are young, upwardly mobile professionals, also known as yuppies, who won't be in the middle class for long because once they land their job, they will very quickly ascend the corporate ladder or the political ladder, and they will be out of the middle class by age 32 or 35. So where is the middle class around D.C., like the 45-year-olds, the 50-year-olds? It's non-existent. And if it does exist, it's typically on that it's so far away from the city center or it lives in extremely on the edge of impoverished areas like southeast. You don't have a thriving middle class like, say, in Prince George's County like you did 30, 40, 50 years ago. So, so much of that new middle class is just immigrants. And I wouldn't really – a lot. most of those immigrants, those first-generation immigrants, you can't really classify them as middle class. They do menial tasks. Many of them work two or three jobs to make ends meet because they're not only providing for themselves, but they're also sending money back home to their families. And this is kind of the idea that they want. They want to create they want to create cities where only the elite live. And then on the outside, you do have a middle class, but it's not an American middle class. It's a foreign middle class because the foreign middle class is there thanks to the urban middle class that allowed them to come in the first place. And one of the things that Brooks points out is that among Democrats, which this elite class votes for overwhelmingly, support for increased immigration has increased from 10 percent in the 1990s to over 50 percent today. And it's because this new elite, they, they're not loyal to their country. They're not loyal to their ethnicity. They're not loyal to any religion anymore. They're simply loyal to themselves personally, their partners, if they have one, and or if they have multiple in case you're like Katie Hill. Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's That name is a blast from the past. Oh, my God. Or their class. That's really what they're they're loyal to. They're loyal to the lifestyle that they've been able to create through their academic success and through their um, their technical prowess, and they're interested in preserving that class. The rest of the country they really don't care anything about, and the the reason then this creates a problem because if you had a middle class or a working class of uh, say white people or even black people, they're going to start resenting these people, and this is why this is what fueled a lot of the Black Lives Matter animosity. These black folks who have been living in these inner cities for so long, they look around and overnight they've got a bunch of young, rich white people moving into their hood. And that creates animosity. It creates resentment. And for many of these people, they haven't really interacted with many white people since the 1960s. Because remember, after the riots and all that stuff in the 1960s, white people left. They fled these cities. So for decades, it's literally just been black cities. And now you've got all these rich white people moving in. And I saw a, um, an article a few years ago. That said in Washington, D.C., the average income for white people was like 120000 a year. The average income for black people was 37000 And they're literally living right across the river from one another. So you can imagine you cross the river and you're in just unbelievable prosperity and just wealth. It's like you're in a complete you know, new futuristic city. You cross back over the, over the river into your neighborhood and it's a slum by comparison. And so the mentality was, uh, you know, these white people are coming in and, yeah, they're making the city better, but they're not making it better for us. They're making it better for themselves. And can you imagine the resentment that would exist if you also had a white working class right next to these people? It creates a lot of political problems for this new, uh, this new creative class. So the solution is let's bring in foreigners to do the menial work to replace the American working class. And we won't have to worry about this resentment from the foreigners because they'll just be happy to be here. And besides – 
we support their ability to bring in their um, their aunts and uncles and grandparents and their family members. So they're going to be thankful to us for being very open and pro-immigration. And they're going to turn to us and our political party as opposed to the working class Americans whose jobs these foreigners have replaced. The third point Brooks points out, he says, we've pulled these parties further left on cultural issues, prizing cosmopolitanism and questions of identity while watering down or reversing traditional democratic positions on trade and unions. Around 1990, nearly a third of labor members of the British Parliament were from working class backgrounds. From 2010 to 2015, the proportion wasn't even one in 10. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won the 50 most educated counties in America by an average of 26 points, while losing the 50 least educated counties by an average of 31 points. In 2020, Joe Biden won just 500 or so counties, but together, they account for 71% of the American economic activity. According to, This is according to the Brookings Institution. Donald Trump won more than 2,500 counties that together generate only 29% of that economic activity. He writes, the creative class has converted cultural attainment into economic privilege and vice versa. It controls what Jonathan Rauch described in his new book, The Constitution of Knowledge, as the epistemic regime. Um, the massive network of academics and analysts who determine what is true. Most of all, it possesses the power of consecration. It determines what gets recognized and esteemed and what gets disdained and dismissed. If you feel seen in society, that's because the creative class sees you. If you feel unseen, that's because this class does not. Like any class, the Bobos are a collection of varied individuals who tend to share certain taken-for-granted assumptions, schemas, and cultural rules. So, for instance, members of our class find it natural. And he identifies himself as a Bobo. He identifies with this class, David Brooks does. Because, I mean, he technically is. He's, he's uh, what do you call it? The French call it the French Revolution, the fourth estate. Uh, I think so, yes. He, said, he writes, members of our class find it natural to leave their hometown to go to college and get a job, whereas people in other classes do not. In study after study, members of our class display more individualistic values and a more autonomous sense of self rather than classes. Members of the creative classes see their career as the defining feature of their identity and place a high value on intelligence. And it's funny, one of my friends, whenever I first moved to D.C., he was, he was from California as well. He was complaining about this around the D.C. area. He was saying that you know, around Washington, D.C., you're, what you do defines you not where you're from or even your name. It's like in other parts of the country, you ask, you meet somebody, one of the first things you ask them is, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Mm -hmm. Around here is what do you do? That well, is what defines your worth. It also certainly doesn't help that the left had literally turned where are you from into a microaggression. They said, oh, that's racist if you ask where yeah, a person is from. Yeah, that's true. Usage of the word smart increased fourfold in the New York Times from 1980 to 2000, according to Michael Sandel's recent book, The Tyranny of Merit. And by 2018, he writes, usage had nearly doubled again. Without even thinking about it, we in the creative class consolidate our class standing through an ingenious code of openness. We tend to like open floor plans, casual dress, eclectic localist tastes that are willfully unpretentious. This seems radically egalitarian because there are no formal hierarchies of taste or social position. But only the most culturally privileged person knows how to navigate a space in which the social rules are mysterious and hidden. Seamus Rahman Khan is a sociologist who attended and then taught at St. Paul, an elite New England prep school. As the meritocratic creative class displaces the old wasps, he observes, what the school primarily teaches is no longer upper crust polished or social etiquette, but ease, the knowledge of how to act in open environments where the rules are disguised. A student who possesses ease can walk into any room and be confident that she, uh, that she can handle whatever situation she finds. Uh, this is, by the way, this is just a little side note. This is how you know that Brooks, or uh, actually Brooks didn't write this. This is the guy, uh, this is Seamus Raman Khan. This is how you know he's part of the class he is. And this is how 
he identifies himself as part of his class. In correct English grammar, if you're talking about somebody in the third person and you don't give their name, you don't give their gender, it's automatically assumed it's a he. This is just correct English grammar. Or you can substitute the he with they as the third person singular. But in woke academic feminist circles, you just completely overturn the apple cart and you replace that with she because the thinking goes, men have been dominant for so many centuries, so it's time to finally put women in the dominant position. So this is how you know this guy is a self-described or self-considered elite. A student who possesses ease can walk into any room and be confident that she can handle whatever situation she finds. She knows how to structure relationships with teachers and other professional superiors so that they are treated both as authority figures and confidants. A student in possession of ease can comfortably engage the cafeteria workers with a distant friendliness that at once respects social hierarchy and pretends it doesn't exist at all. A student with ease knows when irony is appropriate, what historical quotations are overused, how to be unselfconscious in a crowd. These practices, as Kahn writes in Privilege, his book about St. Paul can be absorbed only through long experience within elite social circles and institutions. Openness in manners is matched by openness in cultural taste. Once upon a time, high culture, the opera, the ballet, had more social status than popular culture. Now social prestige goes to the nobrow, the person with so much cultural capital that he moves between genres and styles, highbrow and lowbrow with ease. And this is what the immense, this is what the ability to make $100,000 on 10 hours a week has created. It's created a lot of spare time, a lot of leisure time for this new class. And they've uh, those who are more entrepreneurial and hardworking, they've used a lot of that leisure time to become more culturally aware. So typically somebody uh, in this class, they will be able to carry on an intelligent conversation about any genre of music. They know the leading musicians in any genre of music, whether you're talking about classical, rap, country, pop, even foreign music. They can go right along with the flow. Many of these people, they're up to date on so they're so up to date on Spanish music that they could go to Colombia or Peru and carry on a conversation in Spanish with a native of that country. And that person would be amazed by how much they know about their country and their culture because they have so much leisure time on their hands. They're able to learn foreign languages. They're able to gain immense amounts of knowledge about different cultures so that rather than esteeming high culture, which used to be opera, ballet, classical music, they're able to level all of culture across the board so that all culture is relative and rap music is now considered just as elite as classical music. He writes, culture is a resource used by elites to recognize one another and distribute opportunities on the basis of the display of appropriate attitudes. And this is how the American dream has partially been destroyed. Used to, it didn't matter if you were conservative, liberal, moderate, none of that mattered. That was politics. If you wanted to climb the ladder and achieve the American dream, you could. If you wanted to meet people and network, you could. It was based on politeness. It was based on the bourgeois values of politeness, of kindness, of respect for authority, of respect for your betters. And you would ingratiate yourself to people who had capital. You would get a good job. You would move up the ladder, all that good stuff. Nowadays, however, the way you ingratiate yourself to people who have money and power is by showing that you're politically competent and sufficiently progressive. So this completely shuts out conservatives. Unless you want, unless you're just a really good actor and you can pretend like you're progressive, but this this creates a class where only progressives can climb the social ladder, which means that conservatives now have a, an increasingly dwindling number of careers that they can go to to achieve the American dream. Brooks writes, I underestimated the way the creative class would successfully raise barriers around itself to protect its economic privilege, not just through schooling, but through zoning regulations that keep home values high. And it's funny these uh, these elites they like to rail against redlining back in the 1950s. But the, 
it's, this is essentially another form of redlining by making sure that the areas they live are zoned in such a way to where people, only people who make their money, their kind of money, can move into those areas. Professional certification structures that keep doctors and lawyers' incomes high while blocking competition from nurses and paralegals. And this is another thing about healthcare. You know, this is one of the uh, America's healthcare is ridiculously expensive. This is one area where progressives and socialists do have a point. We spend far more on healthcare than we should compared to other first world nations, and this is one of the reasons why. These this new elite, the doctors and lawyers of this elite, they make sure that they protect their high salaries, which are higher than anywhere else in the world. I mean, you're looking at $900,000 a year in America for a job that you would make $300,000 a year in the UK. And the reason why this is possible is because of all the certification structures that they created to make sure that they have uh, uh, to make sure that they have diminished the demand of doctors and nurses, so that people who uh, you know nurses can't do things in America that they could do in other countries. It also certainly doesn't help that the the medical industry, medical experts, big pharma, and others have been given unprecedented levels of power in the aftermath of COVID. Yeah, and this this kind of ties into this elite trying to entrench itself and its children in their position to make sure that people in there who agree with their ideology, who have attended their schools, that they maintain their position of power. Brooks writes, I underestimated our intolerance of ideological diversity. Over the past five decades, the number of working class and conservative voices in universities, the mainstream media and other institutions of elite culture has shrunk to a sprinkling. If our old class structure was like a layer cake, rich, middle, and poor, the creative class is like a bowling ball that was dropped from a, from a great height onto that cake. So Brooks bemoans the reaction that this has created because obviously the people who have been displaced, both black and white, um, working class, middle class, and poor, they're not going to take this line down because this isn't helping them at all. They visit these cities and they're awed by the it, – It's it actually really is kind of like the timeline if the Hunger Games was real. I think the Hunger Games was based for what the latter half of the 22nd century, the 23rd century, something like that. But if the Hunger Games was real, this is kind of the timeline that we would be on. You've got a new technical elite that has risen through the ranks through meritocracy, not through inherited wealth. Not through hard work. That's another thing. These people, they're, they're not all hardworking. They just work smart, many of them. So they've achieved this level of, um, of elite status overnight. Many of them grew up poor and now suddenly they're wealthy. And they're laying the groundwork for super cities. And as he pointed out, you've got 11 cities in America that have absorbed this, this wealth and this elite. So they've created these super cities that are just you know futuristic, unbelievably – uh, unbelievably wealthy. They've got all kind of different, uh, you know, modes of transportation, and they've got all this enormous wealth, and they've got all this immense wealth. And people from outside, when they visit it, they're they're awed by it. It's like, wow, look at all this. But then, if they leave, they leave with a good impression. If they stick around, they find out that the people who run that city of Pan Am are extremely snobbish. And eventually it gets to the point to where their the power dynamic is so skewed that finally they they're like, okay, we're bored. You know, we have a we have a two hour work week. What are we going to do the rest of the week? Oh, I know. Let's let's get the peasants to kill each other in the arena. Let's create Hunger Games. So the reaction, obviously, is that Brooks point to is the election of Donald Trump, the rise of Bernie Sanders. He writes, the dominance of the Bobos has also engendered a rebellion among its own offspring. The members of the creative classes have labored to get their children into good colleges, but they've also jacked up college costs and urban housing prices so high that their children struggling under are struggling under crushing financial burdens. This revolt has boosted Bernie Sanders in the U.S., Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France, and so on. 
Part of the youth revolt is driven by economics, but part is driven by moral contempt. Younger people look at the generations above them and see people who talk about equality, but drive inequality. A third rebellion is led by people who are doing well financially, but who feel culturally humiliated. The Bourbour Rebellion, with like the people on yachts with Trump flags that he points out earlier. These are Mark and Patricia McCloskey, the rich St. Louis couple who waved their guns at passing black protesters last year. These are the people who elected as mayor of Toronto, the crude, brash-talking Rob Ford, who attempted to put a very non-bobo shopping mall, a suburban Disneyland, right in the center of the city. I didn't even know about this. This this sounds like I don't. I remember Rob, the late great Rob Ford. Rest in peace. That dude was a legend, man. He's one of my absolute favorite Canadians ever. That that's that's hilarious. Can you imagine putting a, a, a 1970s shopping mall right in the heart of Washington D.C., like right in the Shaw neighborhood? That, that would be hilarious. <laughs> These are people who rebel against codes of political correctness. And these people turned out in vast numbers for Brexit and for Donald Trump, specifically because even though they're wealthy, even though they are part of the former elite, they're not given the respect that they feel they deserve because nowadays success is not measured by how much money you have. Success is measured by how politically correct you are and whether or not you know to say the right things and support the right causes. This is why Donald Trump would not be who he is if he was 20 years younger. Donald Trump would not be able to achieve the same level of success, not only of wealth, but also of prestige and respect that he attained in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s if he was 20, especially if he was 30 years younger than what he was. That simply would not be possible. He is a product of the 1980s where hard work, grit, determination, and skill allowed you to rise, no matter what your beginnings were, allowed you to rise up through the ranks and be able to create wealth. Now, because of this new class of gatekeepers, a lot of talent is being unused because they're considered racist, because they're considered homophobic, because they do not align with the new civic religion. If uh, Brooks writes, if creative class types just worked hard and made more money than other people, that might not be such a, an acute cause of political conflict. What causes psychic crisis are the whiffs of smarter than and more enlightened than and more tolerant than that the creative classes give off. People who feel that they have been rendered invisible will do anything to make themselves visible. And this is kind of what I mentioned earlier, like I was on the Metro and there was this middle-aged guy who was ranting and raving about masks. And these young people, these young college students were sitting there just ignoring him on their phones, talking, and he's going like off. He was anti-mask. He was right? anti-mask. He was going off about how there's no need to wear a mask if you've been vaccinated. You which know, is true. Which is true. It's true. But the, the, he was being extremely obnoxious. And you could tell the guy wasn't poor. Like he wasn't a homeless bum. He was rich. You could tell by the way he was dressed, the way he acted. He was wealthy, most likely a Republican. But he was just being such a jerk that he was just turning people off. And this is what Brooks is pointing out. People who feel that they have been rendered invisible will do anything to make themselves visible. They will act out in ways that they ordinarily would not act out in. Even wealthy people will do things and say things. It's like the the January 6th, the people who attended January 6th, they weren't a bunch of poor bums. Poor bums can't afford well, to come were, to Washington, D.C. A lot of them were like middle class, working class, like, you know, that they were just average Trump supporters who felt, and I feel in the same way with the guy about talking about masks on the Metro, they just feel they are underrepresented. They are... At, the elite will go out of their way to ignore them, to treat, to ridicule them and dismiss them and treat them as beneath representation. And I think they are perfectly justified. I think if anything, you know, I talked to you about this, that a while ago, Tucker Carlson on his show actually called for his followers, his viewers, 
to basically start treating maskies, as they're called, people who wear masks, the same way they treated us for a year. You know, there were all these viral videos of people screaming hysterically at people who wouldn't wear a mask. You know, a guy in Philadelphia trying to get on a bus without a mask, and like eight police officers dragged him off the bus like like a sack of potatoes. They treated all of us like garbage for not wearing masks, and Tucker basically said, enough, it's time to start treating them the same way, especially because... They're the ones denying the science now. They're the ones just making it up. The CDC, they're making it up as they go along. Oh, wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Uh, get a vaccine. Get multiple vaccines. Oh, the vaccine doesn't work. Oh, but you still get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Like, And but it's understandable why people are no, My, my argument is that, is that these people aren't poor. Like, they're not dirt poor. A no, dirt poor person can't afford yeah. to travel to Washington, D.C. and stay in a hotel. Like, a lot of these people, they were the, the downtown hotels were filled with Trump supporters. A lot of these people are not only upper middle class, many of them are outright wealthy. In fact, one of the ladies who got arrested inside the Capitol... She's a multimillionaire. She was uh, owned a business. Another guy is a real, uh, you know, big in real estate. He owns a, owns a real estate company. So a lot of these people, a lot of them are bankers, lawyers. But the thing is, the reason why they are acting like revolutionaries is because their grievance isn't economic, like a lot of the working class who they joined, they linked arms with and stormed the capital with, it's that they fall side by side with. It's cultural and social. At it's this point. Right, right. right. It's but, cultural and social. These people ordinarily, these were the elite. And this is why when Trump says, these people in Washington, D.C., the media, they think they're the elite. They're not the elite. You're the elite. You've got more money than they do. He wasn't talking to the working class. The working class does not have more money than these people. He was talking to these people. These people are upper middle class. They achieved the American dream the old-fashioned way, or they inherited wealth from their parents. And they have been marginalized just like the working class because the new elite looks down on them the same way it does the working class because the new elite isn't just about money. Success for them isn't defined in dollars and cents. Success for them is defined in the company you keep and the political beliefs that you hold and the tolerance that you display and wear on your sleeve. Well, certainly also you refer to the McCloskeys, you know, the lawyers, the husband and wife lawyer duo in St. Louis who famously just actually very recently, I think just Tuesday actually, Governor Mike Parson announced he was pardoning them. He was issuing a full pardon. They previously did agree to plead guilty to a couple of misdemeanor charges of like uh, – harassment i think and, and had agreed to pay fines but then the governor pardoned them they are very wealthy and i think they are registered democrats because mark mccloskey for those of you guys who don't know this is awesome he's running for the republican nomination for u.s senate in missouri as he, a registered democrat or as a, former as a, as a republican as a former, former registered democrat he is running as a republican nice and, nice and remember they both spoke at the republican national convention last year and they they were registered democrats you know and, and you can imagine wealthy lawyers they probably are on the left side of the scale but all it took is a single mob of black nationalists and anarcho-communists breaking down the gate to their gated suburb and marching through the streets and threatening to kill their dog, threatening to burn their mm -hmm. house down. And their house, by the way, I couldn't believe this. But did you see the pictures of the inside of the house? I did, yeah. It's yeah. like a castle in there. It is actually like some Hearst Castle stuff mm -hmm. with these big chandeliers and columns and really fancy. Like, these are ultra-wealthy people but see, who that normally was, would be Democrat donors. But see, that was the that was what the elite used to spend their money on to show off their wealth. Yep. Stuff that, was, that harkened back to classical Europe. Like things that looked like you, if you were super wealthy, you would try to make your home look as close to a Victorian style palace as you possibly could. Like you would use, you would buy, you know, European artwork, you would buy a nice chandeliers, you would basically build a castle. Well, the new elite disdains that. New elite, the new elite cannot stand that. The new elite wants to build, uh, build. The new elite, if you notice where they live, the where they live mirrors the places that they've traveled as students. It mirrors mm -hmm. the other yuppie centers, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Seoul. 
right. London, Paris. They it all looks the same and it looks completely different. It's all huge open spaces, like they mentioned. They they want to try to show their openness through you know subconsciously through their the open aesthetic. It's completely different from what the elite used to have, like the McCloskeys have. Right. Um, he writes. Oh, sorry, go ahead. He writes political attitudes. Did well, I, hang on, that? I wanted to make one more point about the McCloskeys before we moved on. Are we moving on? Uh, yes, we're moving okay. on. Okay, sorry. So, but the point I was making with the McCloskeys is that these people normally would either be Democrats or more just kind of apathetic when it comes to politics. They wouldn't go out of their way. But all it took was a mob to make them say, "Okay, screw all that. We're now supporting mm-hmm. Trump. We're going to speak in support of Trump. We're going to criticize Black Lives Matter, and I'm going to run for Senate." And that's and that's all it takes is that they eventually realize, "Hey, we may virtue signal in the past, and we may donate to Democrats. That's not going to save us because they see us. Those those would be revolutionaries in the streets." who want to burn our house down, they see us as the problem. And I imagine how many of these yuppies, imagine if, you know, a group of Black Lives Matter rioters burst into their apartment, their windowless kitchen apartment, and smashed up their, you know, fake marble countertop, mm-hmm. you know, and, and t- tore up their charcuterie boards. I think those people would immediately turn around and vote for Trump as a result. Mm-hmm. That's all it really takes to turn these people around. But again, they they try to live as disconnected from these realities as possible. Well, and you mentioned that they're now getting uh, politically active, but that was the thing. A lot of these uh, – the elite, they didn't like Donald Trump. They, they would talk about politics like Donald Trump talked about politics, but they wouldn't run for office. They wouldn't get involved because that was kind of for the fourth estate. That was for people who had liberal arts degrees, the lawyers. That, that, was, that was their profession. That was what they did. Now, they would have these people over to their mansions, and they would talk to politicians, but they themselves wouldn't become politicians. But as they start to – as people like the McCloskey start to lose their former prestige and elite status to this new elite, they're going to, you're going to start to see more and more rich people run for office as Republicans because they understand that this is the new reality that we're facing. If we don't – if we want to restore the old order, we're going to have to use the power of government to do it. So Brooks identifies a blue hierarchy and a red hierarchy. In the blue hierarchy, you have the tech and media executives, university presidents, and this is in order uh, from top to bottom – Foundation heads, banking CEOs, highly successful doctors and lawyers. Of these people, he writes, they work hard, as Daniel Markovitz reports in The Meritocracy Trap. The share of high-income workers who average more than 50 hours of work a week almost doubled from 1979 to 2006, while the share of the lowest earners working long hours dropped by almost a third. And this is why a lot of people will say that low-income people are just lazy. I mean, you'll hear this a lot. Americans just don't want to work nowadays. Nobody wants to work. That's yeah. why we got to bring in immigrants to do the dirty jobs that Americans won't do. But you've got to look at the despair that a lot of lower-income Americans face. I've, when I was in college, um, I don't look fondly back on my years in college just because I was working I. nonstop. I, I, I was literally – there was one time I was working um, 60 hours a week and taking 15 hours – a 15-hour course load. And – there's no the despair that that creates when you're making seven twenty five an hour and a job. It's like we just work. A lot of people say we well, just work a second job, just get a second job, get a third job. Like a, I think it was Kurt Schlicker. Kurt he Schlicker. was criticizing millennials one time about what their student debt. Well, you know what's the problem? Just get a second job. That's what I did. Get and a third I like job. Kurt Schlicker, but uh, yeah, like he but said, that's com- what I did. Complete Things disconnect. Change. It's just yeah. a complete disconnect from the from the value of a salary today. Not eight hour, you know, dollar an hour job or nine dollar an hour job. It's just a dead end. That and so it's no wonder why these lower income people aren't working longer hours. I people think, people say, well, look, you know, if you, if you're poor, you should be working fifty to sixty hours a week. Do you want to work fifty to sixty hours a week making seven twenty five an hour? Your life, you know, your life really isn't going to improve that much. You'd be better off just working thirty thirty five an hour. Take a welfare check and spend some time with your kids. I mean, your your quality of oh, life yeah. is gonna be better doing that. Several friends of mine who stayed on unemployment after with the 
virus and everything when they lost their jobs. They just stayed on unemployment and just said, oh, it's just easier to collect unemployment at this point. I think it was, it was Larry Elder who said the other day that, you know, he told his life story about growing up, you know, with his father and his brothers. The house that they lived in in Los Angeles now at today would be valued at approximately $600,000. You could not afford that. If you worked three jobs, you would not be able to afford a house like that. Prices are just unaffordable. It's unsustainable right now with everything. Houses, cars, certainly the cost of raising a family. These things cost more nowadays. It mm -hmm. costs a lot. Childcare, school, certainly a house, a car, all these other things. It costs more. So of these people at the top of the blue hierarchy, a 2017 Stanford survey found that big tech executives are in favor of higher taxes, redistributive welfare policies, universal health care, green environmental programs. So they sound like progressives. Yet the study found they tend to oppose anything that would make their perch less secure. So they don't support unionization. In fact, they are rabidly anti-unionization. They oppose any form of government regulation that might affect their own business, but they do support government regulation that would hurt their competitors. They uh, oppose any kind of antitrust or anti-credentialist policies. So like all of these rich doctors and lawyers who support these uh, these these policies that um, that keep other people, like keep uh, nurse practitioners from doing certain things that they could do in other countries or bars people from, makes it so difficult to become a doctor. Uh, yeah, they, they, they support that. They don't want the government stepping in and deregulating that at all because that's going to cut into their income. And if their kids, if they're grooming their kids to be doctors, well, their kids are going to make over a million dollars a year. And if the government deregulates that, you're going to have more doctors, and that means less money for their kids. With their amazing financial and convening power, blue oligarchs move to absorb any group that threatens their interests, co-opting their symbols, recruiting key leaders, hollowing out their messages. Woke capitalism may seem like corporations gravitating to the left, but it's also corporations watering down the left. Members of the blue oligarchy sit atop systems that produce inequality, and on balance, their actions suggest a commitment to sustaining them. And it reminds me the other day I was driving through Georgetown and there's this nice restaurant on the quarter of Wisconsin Avenue and uh, Pros I think it's called Prospect Street. It's a really nice – got a nice outdoor patio. A lot of really rich people go there and eat. And I'm driving by and I see what looks like a homeless guy sitting there having a very loud conversation with an older, older white lady. Like she was – like she looked like she might have been 85 years old. But you could tell she's very nicely dressed, very, very wealthy. So I'm thinking, this is different. I wonder if she just invited this homeless guy to come sit down and have a conversation with her. I roll down the window to find out what they're talking about, and he's going off about how the, how white liberals don't care anything about creating black cities for black people, that white liberals just want to co-opt black people, and that they're just taking black leaders and putting them in their corporations to make black people feel good about themselves. And this is what Brooks is pointing out. These corporations, they're very uh, – they're, they're in survival mode anytime you have a system like uh, – a movement like Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter. So they immediately co-opt the leaders, give them posh positions on their board. That's why all these corporations were talking about last year how they were going to start diversifying. All these all these big Fortune 500 companies were talking about how they are going to start diversifying their leadership. So all that means is they're going to take a lot of these black leaders who are leading these movements and they're just going to give them a seat. On their board, they're going to give them a nice uh, six-figure salary in their company. Just give give them give their kids jobs so they'll pipe down and be quiet. And that's what these companies are doing. They're not actually becoming woke. They're just surviving, um, you know, by co-opting these left-wing movements. One step down from the blue oligarchy is the creative class itself, a broader leadership class of tenured faculty, established members of the mainstream media, urban and suburban lawyers, senior nonprofit and cultural institution employees, and corporate managers whose attitudes largely mirrored the blue oligarchs above them, notwithstanding the petty resentments of the former toward the latter. 
The Bobos believe in human dignity and classical liberalism, free speech, open inquiry, tolerance of different viewpoints, personal autonomy, and pluralism. I disagree with Brooks here. They, he He's projecting his own beliefs on his class. His class does not believe that. His class is not liberal in any sense of the word. Of the word. Part of the problem is that uh, steeped in an outsider pseudo-rebel ethos, we never accepted the fact that we were a leadership class, never took on the institutional responsibilities that go with that acceptance, never got to know or work with people not in our class, and so never earned the legitimacy and trust that is required if any group is going to effectively lead. According to the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, 65% of Americans believe that the most educated and successful people in America are more interested in serving themselves than serving the common good. And if you have a group of people, a class of people that has been educated to think globally, of course they're not going to be interested in the common good. The common good is the common good for their class, which you can be of any ethnicity, any ethnic background and be part of their class. They're not going to think for the common good unless they think in a nationalistic sense. One economic rung below are the younger versions of the educated elite many of whom live in the newly gentrifying areas of urban America, such as Bedford-Stuyvesant, I think that's how you pronounce it, in New York, or Shaw in Washington, D.C. More diverse than the elites of earlier generations, they work in the lower rungs of media, education, technology, and the nonprofit sector. Disgusted with how their elders have screwed up the world, they are leading a revolution in moral sentiments. And uh, this, is where, this is where your cancel culture comes in. And uh, this is funny because they, uh, they will go after, uh, they, they will champion Black Lives Matter, and they'll attack people like Morgan Wallen, who say something in a playful manner uh, that is an unacceptable, unacceptable obviously not word. really in a racist. Obviously not. I mean, we talked about this in a previous episode, of course, way back when. He obviously did not mean it as a racial slur. No, no, he was screaming at, at some black guy. It was just you know kind of way. I, I've talked about this again. People I knew in high school, you could define as white trash. I don't like using that term, but it applies here. They would use that term. Everybody in my high school would use that word: white trash, Asians, Hispanics. Black but, students, they would all use it with each other within their own race. Yeah, and he was talking races. to a white guy, talk. talking to a white friend of his. But this class, this particular class, they are they are the back they are the backbone of cancel culture. They are the ones who are driving cancel culture, and they see an opportunity to jump on this this um, the southern boy who's a country music singer who you know came for nothing and to show to basically all it is is just them flexing their muscles. They're just flexing their class on this boy from East Tennessee and showing him you know, no you know you're living in our world now, buddy. You know, this is our world. You, you're you're going to play by our rules. And, of course, Morgan Wallen, because he doesn't know anything about this stuff, it's like somebody stole his lottery ticket and he just goes to get it back. So now he's making the apology runs. He's basically humiliating himself because he thinks that that's what he's supposed to do. He doesn't even think to fight back. Well, if you think that cancel culture is only coming after the white working class, think again. baby, the rapper baby, at a recent show in Miami, he said this. This is from Time. The baby took the stage at Rolling Loud in Miami, which has quickly become one of America's most energetic and rowdy festivals in recent years, and first raised eyebrows for bringing out Tori Lanez, a notorious hip-hop figure who was arrested for an incident last year in which the rapper Megan Thee Stallion claimed Lanez shot her. These names. What is it with these rapper <laughs> but, names? But, I've got to stop. But think you about said it. To baby, I'm like, what? But think about it. Megan Thee Stallion claimed Lana is shotter. So like that Morgan, Wa Morgan Wallen has been, uh, obviously he was arrested for uh, intoxication. He was uh, suspended. He was kicked off of, I think it was, uh, it was one of the late shows, late night shows, because he was uh, kissing Alabama, Alabama college students, kissing Alabama girls. Went during the middle of the pandemic, obviously without a mask. 
Um, but you know, that's kind of the, that's the drama that you get in country music. Like sometimes country music fans will take a snipe and take a, at each other and talk about your, your music isn't real country in, in rap. Uh, they shoot each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, they literally that, you know, Biggie, Tupac, like, you know, all these guys, like, yeah. Yeah, oh, so like, I just can't even. It's literally yet, a life or death thing. It's it's like an actual. It's like a gang. It's gang culture, obviously, but it's very much like an actual. Yeah, gang. in the literal sense. But yeah, so he brought up Lana, so he's kind of controversial because he allegedly shot another rapper, and uh, but he he denies it. He claims that it wasn't him who shot her. So after the performance, videos started circulated to Baby delivering a strange rant in an attempt to hype the crowd up. He said, "Quote." If you didn't show up today with HIV, AIDS, or any of them deadly sexually transmitted diseases that'll make you die in two or, two or three weeks, then put your cell phone lighter up. Fellas, if you ain't sucking dick in the parking lot, put your cell phone lighter up. <laughs> Wait, what? The blowback from the outside world was swift and near unanimous. Stars like Dua Lipa, Elton John, and Madonna each issued statements <laughs> condemning his words. His remix of Lipa's Levitating which was perched at number three on Billboard Hot 100 and was removed from many playlists. Lollapalooza, Day in Vegas, and Governor's Ball each quickly removed him from their lineups and release statements, with Governor's Ball announcing that they did not tolerate hate or discrimination of any kind. Hashtag the baby is over party trended on Twitter. The iHeart uh, Radio Music Festival in Austin City Limits dropped him soon after. And uh, he was trending. I found out about this because he was trending on Twitter a few days ago. And of course, all the, of course, uh, all the uh, the cancel culture um, crusaders. They were just going after him. And the the way they were going after him, like if you went after, if any white conservative went after a black rapper like this, oh, it would be, you know, mainstream. It would be in every major newspaper, every news outlet about the racism of America's white conservatives. But they were they were saying stuff like hashtag the baby is canceled. Hashtag the baby broke or the baby is the broke. Like it was a lot of really funny hardcore stuff, making fun of his name. They were making fun of of black rap culture, making fun of his music, just going hardcore after him, demanding that he be canceled. So, you know, they're able to release this kind of invective against Morgan Wallen. People are like, okay, yeah, they're just beating up on on you know on the redneck. No, they they're going to go after anybody, and this is something that a lot of blacks are starting to understand. That this cancel culture of the of this new class, this new uh, technocratic class that has popped up, that David Brooks is talking about, they don't care who you are. They're out this. They're in this for themselves. They didn't join Black Lives Matter for Black people. And this is the thing. And this was uh, like the baby was pointing out. You know, you're just you're coming after me because I'm black, and they're like, no, we're coming after you because you're homophobic. Hang on, uh, I actually have to interject here. I've just received uh, footage, video, and audio footage. Of this incident, this rant that DaBaby went on, this is, you guys got to listen to this just to hear the full picture for yourself. Are there any queers in the audience tonight? <laughs> Get them up against the wall! Yes! <laughs> oh, there's one in the spotlight, you don't look right! <laughs> I'm him up against the wall! <laughs> oh my goodness! For reference, just for reference, guys, 
that was not actually to baby that that was a song from the uh, movie adaptation of Pink Floyd's The Wall aka the greatest album of all time but a, a pretty accurate representation it seems of what of what the baby was going for <laughs> but well, it, that's that's sad too when you think about it. this this came out in 1979 and obviously the context is that the character the narrator of the album is he's under the influence of drugs because he's sick and they're trying to get him to perform at his show so he's hallucinating that he's a fascist dictator so that that's the context there but even today that song this song would not be allowed in, <laughs> no, would no, no. not be allowed in today's culture no 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 no, no. well yeah the rap community has come out um very strongly in the baby's uh the baby's support because i mean obviously this is a bunch of rich middle class mostly white people trying to infringe on their culture and their music this is what happens when rap becomes pop it now has to adhere to the new rules, the new corporate standards of, um, you know, of, of tolerance, yeah, tolerance, yeah, diversity, exactly. inclusion. And he actually even basically gave the middle finger to corporate American in his tweet. He basically said, I can't be canceled. You can't cancel me. And they're like, oh, yes, we can. And so they start canceling <laughs> from everything. And, and then he ends up issuing this this uh, stupid little PR apology to the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ plus community. Ah, but gave. one of his ally, one of his rapper allies yeah, speaking of uh, names and rap, this guy is known as uh, Boozy Badass. He, uh, All right. So he went on Instagram and said, quote, it's sad how y'all trying to force this gay stuff on the world. It's sad how y'all trying to ban artists. Y'all sa y'all sad, bro. It's sad, bro. In 10 years, it ain't going to be normal for a kid to be straight. It's sad, bro. Y'all trying to force it on these kids, bro. Pushing it on the artists. Pushing it on the biggest artists. You know why? Because the kids love those artists. You attacking these kids. He added, it's sad. God doing backflips right now. The world <laughs> is after your kid's sexuality. Preach, brother, preach. Oh, he went on saying saying it's not going to be cool to be straight in 10 years. And, and he's not wrong. They're pushing this so hard. Absolutely. They're trying to get more and more kids to become gay and trans because... You know, the more the more the merrier, the more it's you are, the easier. strength in numbers. They still act like it's so difficult and it's a life-threatening decision to come out as gay. It's easier to come out as gay than to come out as a Trump supporter. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So Brooks points out that wokeness is not just a social philosophy. It's an elite status marker, a strategy for personal advancement. So you have to possess copious amounts of cultural capital to feel comfortable using words like intersectionality, heteronormativity, cisgender, problematized, triggering, and Latinx. But if you use these words... It shows the people around you that you're one of them. By navigating a fluid progressive cultural frontier more skillfully than their hapless boomer bosses and by calling out the privilege and moral failings of those above them, young educated elites seek power within elite institutions. Wokeness becomes a way to intimidate boomer administrators and wrest power from them. So that's why all these yuppies who joined Black Lives Matter, they weren't joining Black Lives Matter for black people. They were joining it for themselves. They're doing it mainly to wrest power from their superiors. They're doing it mainly to wrest power from the boomers above them who aren't keeping up with the, the trends and the words that you have to say to show that you have cultural capital. So at, during the Black Lives Matter movement, if you remember, corporations started firing a bunch of people. Because they weren't sufficiently woke. Another thing they started doing is they started rebranding their items. Like you had Uncle Ben's. I went to the store the other day. It's just Ben's now. I didn't buy it. Like I, I miss I miss my Uncle Ben. I ain't buying Lakes Aunt Jemima. Yeah, like I ain't buying no yet. Ben. I want I want Uncle Ben. And so, uh, but yeah, so they started rebranding all of this stuff. And none of this had anything to do with police brutality. None of this had anything to do with George Floyd. You had companies that started rebranding things because they were sensitive. They were they were allegedly offensive to Native Americans. Again, nothing to do. What, what does the Washington Redskins have anything to do with black people? 
Nothing. Nothing at all. It has nothing to do with black people. But yet they changed the name. They finally managed to push that through and change the name of the Washington Redskins. And if you disagree with this stuff, like imagine you're a boomer who works around Washington, D.C., and you've been a lifelong Redskins fan. And now they're destroying its name, just calling it the Washington football team. If you say something at work, that now gives your woke millennial counterparts the ability to remove you from your position and get you fired so they can take your position. And this shows it's not about black people. It's about social and economic mobility. Brooks points out on the lowest rung of the blue ladder is the caring class, the largest in America, nearly half of all workers by some measures, and one that in most respects sits quite far from the three above it. It consists of low paid members of the service sector, manicurists, home health care workers, restaurant servers, sales clerks, hotel employees. Members of this class are disadvantaged in every way. The gap in life ex expectancy between those in the top 40 percent and those in the bottom 40 percent widened from 1980 to 2010, from five to 12 years for men and from four to 13 years for women. Only one in 100 of the children raised in the poorest fifth of households will become rich enough to join the top 5%. And of course, these are like your home health care workers, like a lot of the Hispanic women who come here, they work in that. That's why Joe Biden wants to wants to give a bunch of money to that to that class because that's his voters. He wants to reward his voters. All right, so the red hierarchy. Most rich places are blue, but a lot of the richest people are red. A 2012 study of the richest 4% of earners found that 44% voted Democrat and um, that year, while 41% voted Republican. So the richest of Americans are still kind of evenly divided. Some are corporate executives or entrepreneurs, but many are top-tier doctors, lawyers, and other professionals who aspire to low taxes and other libertarian ideals. This is the core of the GOP donor class, men and women who feel that they worked hard for their money, that the American dream is real, that those who built wealth in this country shouldn't have to apologize for it. Few of them supported Donald Trump in the 2016 GOP primaries, but by 2020, most of the red one percenters I know had swung enthusiastically pro-Trump because at least he's scorned by those who scorned them. It turns out that having a large investment account is no protection against self-pity. One step down are the large property-owning families scattered among small cities and towns like Wichita, Kansas, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, what we might call the GOP gentry. This gentry class derives its wealth not from salary, but from the ownership of assets, furniture companies, ranches, a bunch of McDonald's franchises. This wealth is held in families and passed down through the generations. Members of this elite stay rooted where their properties are and, from the, and form the leadership class in their regions chairing a community foundation or the local chamber of commerce. Below them is the proletarian aristocracy, the people of the populist regatta, contractors, plumbers, electricians, middle managers, and small business owners. People in this class have succeeded in America, but not through the channels of the university-based meritocracy from which they feel alienated. So these are people who are very successful. They're not wealthy. They're middle-class people who did not go to college. And of all the people in America, this class especially hates the university system and looks down their nose at people who think they're better than them just because they have an Ivy League degree. In other circumstances, the GOP gentry would be the natural enemies of the proletarian aristocracy, but now they are aligned. Both embrace the symbolic classmakers of the sociologically low. Pickup trucks, guns, country music, Christian nationalism. Both fear that their children may not be able to compete in the creative class-controlled meritocracy. Both dislike sending their kids to schools that disdain their values, yet understand that their children will have to adopt creative class values if they are going to be accepted in the new elite. The boobors and the provincial bourgeois thus have a common agenda to unmake the creative class of societal transformation of the late 2000s and early 2010s. A level below the people of the populist regatta, you find the rural working class. Members of this class have highly supervised jobs in manufacturing, transportation, construction. Their jobs tend to be repetitive, and many involve some physical danger. As the Princeton sociologist Robert Wuthnow writes, many people in this class have an identity rooted in loyalty to their small town. 
They are supported by networks of extended family and friends who have grown up with one another. Like the poor members of the blue hierarchy, they value interdependence and are less individualistic. Members of this class feel totally forgotten and unaided by, gov uh, by government. So, for instance, uh, even though many of them struggle financially, they don't seek federal help, or if they do seek federal help, they're turned down. And their, their uh, representatives in Congress don't necessarily fight for federal help because they're fiscal conservatives. <clears throat> if educated urbanites go out of their way to enjoy diversity and display their superior cultural taste, one-upmanship is despised in this class. Christmas tree shop sincerity is prized over academic art house pretentiousness. By and large, members of the rural working class admire rich people who earned their wealth. Their real hatred is for Washington, which is a concept that encompasses the entire ruling class. Brooks writes, our politics, meanwhile, has become sharper edged, more identity based and more reactionary, in part because politics is the one arena in which the Bobos cannot dominate. There simply aren't enough of us. And this is where you see the uh, the hatred of the the rural America by these bobos because you would think are right, the bobos haven't made they not only are upwardly mobile they not only are educated but they have literally created their own civilization if you go through Washington DC the nicer areas of Washington DC like U Street 7th Street 14th Street especially over near Union Market um, I think it's called Eastern Market some of these areas it's literally a civilization that has been created in the past five to 10 years. And it's been created by these yuppies, by these bobos. So you would think, why, what do they have to resent against these poor working class Americans? What has, what have poor working class Americans ever done to these people? I mean, if anything, you would think poor working class Americans would resent them, but why do the bobos hate rural working class Americans? And the answer to that is control. These bobos control everything. They control the media. They control academia. They control entertainment. Working class Americans cannot live their life. They cannot enjoy anything without having to interact with these bobos and the culture that they produce. The bobos, however, cannot control politics. So every now and then, these rural folks that the bobos look down their nose on, they elect a Donald Trump. And then these bobos have to live under the laws created by these Donald Trumps. And that infuriates them because now they're having to live under laws created by somebody elected by people who are less than they are and aren't as moral and as enlightened as they are. And that's what drives the hatred. That's what drives the animosity of the Bobos toward middle Americans because politics is the one arena that they can't control because they simply can't, there aren't enough of them to outvote rural America. Now, the answer to that is to import more foreigners. Empower black Americans to vote for the bourgeois elites that the Bobos represent and support and import a bunch of foreigners to do the same. And eventually you can outvote rural America. That is their long-term strategy. Brooks sees Biden as standing outside the current class structure, a product of a bygone era. So Brooks actually has a very favorable view of Biden because he sees Biden as someone who isn't comfortable around the elite class, as someone who gets snappy if he gets pestered by people with, with college degrees. Biden is the only one, he points out, that has not graduated from an elite university um, to be elected to the presidency since the 1970s, the last one being Jimmy Carter. Now, for us, for our purposes, one silver lining with Biden is that that Brooks does point out is that Biden does seem genuinely interested in redistributing wealth down to the non-bobo classes. So he it, Biden does want to use uh, he wants to raise taxes on these people, these wealthy people in cities, and redistribute that wealth down to people who might not ordinarily vote for Democrats. Now, the only thing standing in Biden's way, interestingly enough, 
are the Republicans that these working class people who desperately need that aid elected to Congress. And this is where you get the rift in the college Republicans. The college Republicans is run by a bunch of people who identify more with the Bobo class than with the working class Trump voters. So they naturally want to push out as many Trump voters as they possibly can, preferably completely kick them out so they don't have to be around them. And Biden wants to redistribute wealth from these people, from whether they're Republicans or Democrats, down to the people who voted for Donald Trump, of course, along with blacks and poorer Democrats. If Brooks writes, if there is an economic solution to the class chasms that have opened up in America, the Biden legislative package is surely it. It would narrow the income gaps that breed much of today's class animosity. But economic redistribution only gets you so far. The real problem is the sorting mechanism itself. It determines who gets included in the upper echelons of society and who gets excluded, who gets an escalator ride to premier status and worldly success, and who faces a wall. The Bobos didn't set out to be an elite domineering class. We just fit ourselves into a system that rewarded a certain type of achievement and then gave our children the resources that would allow them to prosper in that system too. But blind to our own power, we have created enormous inequalities, financial inequalities, and more painful inequalities of respect. The task before us is to dismantle the system that raised us. And uh, I would argue you're not really going to dismantle that system from within. You have to conquer it from without. And the only way you're going to conquer it from without is to completely dominate the Republican Party with nationalist populists who are willing to wield the power of government against this Bobo class. And in, the, in doing so, you're going to have to also wield the power of government against the wallets of rich Republicans. And you're going to lose a lot of those voters. But you're also going to gain a lot of the lower income middle class voters who voted for Joe Biden, voted for Barack Obama. Uh, you know, a lot of Hispanics are you're going to gain a lot of Hispanic voters in that process. But uh, the only critique to me, I thought it was a fantastic article. It really sums up the constituencies of both parties. The only critique I would have of Brooks is he completely ignores racial identities. At no point does he ever even acknowledge that the difference between the lower the lower income voters of the Democrats and lower income Democrat, uh, the lower income voters of Republicans is race. If the lower income bracket in America was all the same race, they would overwhelmingly support Donald Trump. Trump would have won in a landslide. And he also fails to point out that the way that the Bobo class is showing that they plan to maintain their power and their grip and eventually control politics as well as everything else in society is by bringing in foreigners and displacing the white working class so they won't have to worry about ever being outvoted again. And that, of course, is one of the many things that we have been saying a lot here at The Right Take, that there has to be this absolute shift, this complete takeover of the Republican Party. We need to completely wipe out the previous guard of neocons and policy wonk nerd wannabes and fiscal conservatives. We need nationalism. We need populism. We need every single Republican to basically be Donald Trump as far as I'm concerned. That and we is need authoritarianism within the confines of the Constitution. Within, and certainly within the confines of the party, if nothing else, we absolutely should rule our own party with an iron fist. We need to treat our party the way Nancy Pelosi treats the Democratic Party. Keep all feuds and spats within the party and be willing to shut down any of those discussions and certainly be willing to kick out those who disagree. This is one more reason why you know Kevin McCarthy is an absolute failure as the House Minority Leader. He will not remove Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger from their committee assignments, even though they are going along with Pelosi's January 6th hoax, he has the power to remove them from their committees. He has the power to kick them out of the caucus, but he won't do it. Meanwhile, Pelosi uses her majority to kick Marjorie Taylor Greene off of every committee without the support of the Republican Party because she can't. We need to start doing that, and until then, uh, until and unless we do that, we will never win. That, unfortunately, is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. This was certainly a very jam-packed episode. 
and we hope you guys enjoyed it. Be sure to follow all of our latest. Be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at righttakepodcast.com. Follow all of our latest social media posts and the podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And don't forget, righttakepodcast.com slash support if you are feeling so generous enough to support us financially. We'll talk to you next week, guys.